was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad. Just to root for the hometown through every zoo. Katie Blue on the Saturday. Hey there, Town Ball Junkies. It's another episode of the Small Town Baseball Commute, and I'm lucky to be your host, Josh Item, coming to you from over here in River Falls, Wisconsin, just east of the Twin Cities metro area. For this conversation and episode, I got to speak with someone in Chris Jackson that's had the opportunity to see the game from lots of different angles, including behind the catcher as an umpire in the Northwest Indiana and then in the Home Talent League for several years in Southern Wisconsin. And then now, Chris has been a player for the last several years and a board member of the uh, MSBL League that's based right there in Madison. So it's a pretty wide-ranging conversation with Chris here. So let's get down to it. Some baseball talk with Chris Jackson. Another conversation here on the Small Town Baseball Commute. And let's get right to it on the line. I've got Chris Jackson coming to us from out around Madison. Right, Chris? How you doing? Great. Yep, I'm in Middleton, Wisconsin, uh, so right next to Madison. Middleton, you said, right? Yeah. You said. Okay. So just, uh, I think that's if I'm coming, I'm coming from the west. That's one of the first, right, right outside Madison. It's kind of on the south side of Madison. Southwest. Yeah, directly west of Madison. So if you're coming in from Lacrosse on US 14, you'll go through Cross Plains and you'll hit Middleton. Uh, and then you'll get into downtown Madison on University Avenue. So uh, we're right off of downtown, um, walking distance of Capitol Brewery. Uh, can often hear the bands play when there's not a pandemic going on uh, on the yeah. evenings and in the summer. It's nice. Sure. I think the last time I was in directly in Middleton was at a baseball coaches association meeting, and this was back, I was about a student teacher, I think, so it was about 15 years ago when I was coaching for Brad Savi in Spring Valley, and we definitely were at a hotel in Middleton is where that was at. So at least one place, as I'm kind of calling around the state here, a place that I have actually been to where I'm talking to somebody from. So that's, uh, you know, heartwarming for me, Chris. It's good. So, hey, let's let's get into it. So your, um, your I would say, breadth of experience around amateur baseball is is pretty wide. So let's kind of start from the beginning. So you grew up in Northwest Indiana, right? Do you want to tell us about yep. that and where that kind of where do you get started with with the game of baseball in Indiana baseball country, right? So explain to me how this happened. Yeah, so I grew up in Griffith, Indiana, uh, which is very Northwest Indiana, basically a suburb of Chicago. Um, I could tell you all about uh, Chicago politics and the Cubs and the White Sox and all the Illinois news, but I, I never got anything from Indiana because we got all the Chicago stations. Um, so grew up there, played baseball in high school. Um, it wasn't really good. I could hit, that's for dang sure. Um, played first base because uh, there was no, no nowhere else for a slow man like me to play. Um, <laughs> wrecked my knee a couple of years ago in a row, um, you know, towards the end of freshman season, uh, dislocated kneecap, needed surgery. Um, and then the last practice before our first game in junior varsity season, did the same same thing to the same knee. Uh, decided right. that that was stupid. Didn't want to do it anymore. Sure. Uh, I liked, you know, my mobility. Um, so I kind of hung up the cleats probably a little too soon. 
but was still interested in the game. And so my uh, coach at the time encouraged me to start umpiring baseball games. And, um, you know, I was 16. I had a car and a license and uh, a lot of time in the summer. So I did a lot of Little League games, you know, worked my way up from like the 9 and 10-year-olds to the 11 and 12s and then did some Babe Ruth games and, you know, started eventually, you know, higher level, higher level until, you know, pretty much was ready to move to Madison, was starting to get into some of the higher level amateur games uh, in Northwest Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, earning the trust of the umpire uh, scheduling coordinator down there. Um, but then moved up um, for a job at Epic um, and then kind of got connected in with the home talent league up here in, in and around Madison in South Central Wisconsin. Uh, someone sure. pointed me in the direction of Pat Riley. Um, you know, the number they gave was the Dodgeville local paper. Um, was kind of crazy. You call and get a, a, you know, a journalism shop and you're asking for Pat mm-hmm. Riley. And, uh, you know, he sounds like this gruff man on the phone and you're like, is he just grumpy with me or what's going on? And, <laughs> you know, I don't think as the president of the league, he's getting calls from people who want to umpire all that often. So, you know, he asked sure. me a couple of questions on uh, my background and what kind of level I've done. And I think he probably knew in his head, you know, hometown league is probably just a different experience than you've had before. So making sure I'm not green and, um, mm-hmm. you know, know how to handle myself around a, a baseball field and, you know, got me connected with the umpire coordinator and, uh, started umpiring there and did that for, gosh, a little over 10 years until I got uh, the itch to play again. Um, and then I joined yeah. up with uh, the, the MSBL. It's a national um, league that has chapters all around the, the U.S. And so we're the right. South Central Wisconsin chapter. We have several different we have a 18 and over division, uh, plays on Sundays, kind of the original division. Um, a 17 and over division, uh, plays on weeknights, a 35 and over division, a 45 and over division, and a, I think it's now 52 and over division. So, um, divisions for any and all levels, there are guys that play, you know, in three or four different uh, divisions because they still love playing ball. So, so I would That's imagine kind of you could history. always, it's, yeah, I would, well, I'd imagine, Chris, you can always play down in those divisions. You can't always play up, right? So the 25-year-olds can't decide to play in the 52-year-old division. But when you say guys play in two or three divisions, you could play down, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah, definitely. So I'm okay. 37 now, um, and I play in the 17 and over division, 18 and over division, and 35 and over division. Sure. Um we do have some exemptions where guys do play up. Um, you know, it takes a special dispensation. You know, a team needs a certain position, uh, and they have a guy that can do it. It's like 34. Um, you know, we'll be 35 and eligible for the league. So uh, we typically find a way to accommodate it. Um, we've really tried to focus on growing that league over the last few years. Um, so. Mm-hmm one of the creative and then, ways to do it yeah and i think we'll get so so really i want to there's a couple couple topics i want to talk to you about chris i definitely want to get dive back into the kind of the umpiring part of your career and the things you've seen doing that and in that realm and then i want to get into 
the MSBL stuff in Madison too. Um, so let's let's go back to I want to go back to the to the umpiring piece. So you said you got started when you were 16, um, because a lot of times I think we're trying to and different guys who have gone into umpiring have done it later in life. They're, maybe they're done playing ball and then you know and they're I've known a couple guys who in their 30s stopped playing amateur ball and then started umpiring after that. Um, but you got into it pretty early. What do you remember about those early days of being a really young umpire? I just think about some of those horror stories you hear about. And I just about saw one at a hockey game the other night with with some guy yelling. I almost walked over there, but I, my daughter's only nine. Like, I don't want to start fighting with all the hockey parents yet. Um, but a guy yelling at, like, a 15-year-old ref to call a penalty in a nine-year-old hockey game, like, Good Lord. So tell me what, how was it getting started? Did you have any, you got any good war stories from the early days of umpiring or what are your recollections of learning to be an umpire? That was a really yeah, long question. It, Sorry, Chris. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, gave me some time to think of some of those stories. Um, I, I think it's, it's great. And you know, I mentioned moving up for Epic and I actually cited my experience as an umpire uh, several times in that interview um, it just gives you a wide range of scenarios and interactions that you probably wouldn't get if you're not officiating youth sports. Um, I've certainly blown my fair share of calls, and I can remember a couple of, you know, very distinct and memorable scenarios where it's like, uh, yeah, I probably could have handled that one better. Um, one, and I had been umpiring for a couple of years at this point in time, uh, and this was actually in my hometown at the Little League field. Um, at some point in the 2000s, they came up with those breakaway bags where if you slide, the bag will dislodge from its mount and prevent yeah, yeah. ankle injuries and whatnot. Um, I had zero idea what the the specific field rule on that was, but had an instance where I was on the bases, kid slides into second, the bag dislodges and you know the fielder is there holding the tag on the the player and he was clearly safe the the bag dislodges and now he's not touching the bag and so i'm just caught in between you know not knowing what the heck was going on but seeing that you know he's not touching the bag anymore so i call him out and good mm-hmm. god the whole uh rain <laughs> of every fan in the stand poured down on me and you know, people are yelling, coaches are yelling, and I was like, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the the rule is, and, you know, I just did what I thought was the right thing, and I stuck with that call. Yep. Uh, it was terribly wrong, but it was what it was. Um, and, you know, the, the league officials came over and, you know, just informed me of the, the rule, and I apologized and, you know, went on my uh, merry way after the game. Um, you know, that was yeah, pretty uncomfortable, the, but you stick with yeah, it. Yeah, and the sun – well, the sun comes up the next day. I mean, there's something there's something that will always drive me nuts about um, people just losing their minds at youth sports games, whether it's, a, whether it's an officiating call or, or whatever it is. Our kids need to learn to deal with adversity too, you know, and that's, that's the whole thing. Like, you guys are volunteer – we're volunteer coaches as parents we're we're just 
happy to, we should just be happy to drive our kids there and have something for them to do. And uh, I've got a good buddy at work that, that the way that, the way that he puts it, and I thought this was, this was very um, thoughtful of him. He just says something about as soon as we keep, start keeping score, parents lose their minds. And I thought that is right because even in second grade football, when they weren't keeping score, things were fine. The very next year, we get into football, and it's still the coaches are throwing the ball to the kids and everything else, and people are, like, trying to influence the officials. There's, I mean, it's just I'm not sure where it comes from. So yeah. there's a special challenge to everybody. Try to keep your brain once your kids get old enough that they start keeping score in some of the games. So then we move into – so then you move up into amateur ball, and you said 10 years in the home talent league, Chris. What What was – what is – what is umpiring amateur baseball like? What sets it apart? What makes it maybe different than other levels? Or maybe it's all the same, but what are some of your recollections of umpiring amateur ball? And now you're you're kind of done doing that, right, now that you're in Madison and playing. So you don't have to worry about anybody taking this, holding this against you as an umpire this summer, <laughs> right? So what yeah. do you – What? tell me about umpiring amateur baseball. Well, uh, the story I like to share um, – for how I got started in the home talent league is um, the first game I was scheduled to do uh, was Verona and Dodgeville. Um, they're kind of right down the road from each other. Um, they're both storied um, organizations. They have uh, historically good teams, always have winning records, always have competitive ball clubs. Um, I don't remember who I was working with, but, you know, before the game, you know, my partner and I decided I would do the plate. Um, you know, I hadn't done the plate in a while, but uh, I was going to get out there and I get down and, and first pitch comes in and I call it a strike. And all of a sudden I hear behind me like strike one called on the outside corner. We're underway. And I'm like, what who the heck is And I look behind <laughs> me and they're, they're broadcasting this game on the radio. And I was like, Jesus, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, so... Um, you know, I'd heard things and, you know, when you tell people around that you're going to umpire in the home talent league, you get those snickers and, um, you know, they know what it's about. And it's certainly, it's not a beer drinking league for the players, but it's certainly a beer drinking league for the fans. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, amateur baseball is, is something else. And I think, you know, home talent is such a big league. Um, you know, there's like 40 teams in the league, and they're all over mm-hmm. South Central Wisconsin. And um, you know, it's what people in these towns do on the on the weekends, on Sundays. They go to these games, mm-hmm. and you know, they they drink beer, and uh, they watch their team, and they get fired up about it. And um, as an umpire, you have a pretty good idea of you know which fans and which towns are going to be the most unruly and um, mm-hmm. you know, as you get towards the end of the season, you have, you know, the fan appreciation days where they're selling beer for, you know, 50 cents or a dollar a can and, you know, doing big raffles and you have, you yeah. know, everyone out, um, you know, coming in from, you know, farther out of town to, to watch those games. You know, some of those, you know, by far were the biggest, biggest crowds that I've ever, uh, officiated in front of. Um, yeah, and, and you know you're doing it in a town where the population is like 500, so mm-hmm. um, you know, pretty cool how that happens in South Central Wisconsin. And you know, even moving up here as a 20-some-year-old um, and not really being a 
you know, a grown-up yet, uh, I came to appreciate uh, the tradition of the league and uh, how wonderful it is to have, you know, that level of baseball. Uh, And the guys are good. You know, they're good players. Some of them used to play in the the minor leagues and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the the pitchers can still bring in the the 80s, good breaking balls, and some of those guys can really mash the ball. So, you know, you're not – you're not umpiring clunkers, you know, you're seeing, you know, well-played games, very efficient, you know, you're, you're done in two, two and a half hours and, you know, that's how the baseball game should be played. Yeah. Well, and, and going back to the, to the things you turn around and hear, I mean, that's that you hear, you, you go to, you go to pro games and you're sitting in section 248 and, and some guy up there is, yelling at the players, yelling at the umpires, and you just kind of shake your head and you think, well, those guys can't hear you. Like, all you're doing is interrupting my kids and my family's time right now. (laughs) That's all you're doing up here, guy. But at an amateur game, all the stuff that I can speak as a player, all the stuff that gets yelled at you, like, you hear it because there aren't that many people there. Is it that way in amateur baseball as well? Yes, definitely. Um, You know, and – you get to have a pretty good relationship with, with the catchers and the good ones are, you know, placating you and, you know, saying, I don't know what they're talking about. That one was right on the corner. You know, yeah. I might've blown the call. I might know I've blown the call, but you know, you get into that good relationship where they're making you feel good too. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, was you, it a you lot do hear it. Christmas, yeah, they're right on yeah. top of you too. Yeah. Was it a lot of, was it a lot of one man down in, hometown league is it one man umpire or is it two man umpire we do a little mix up here depending where you yeah, go yeah we have we have two man crews um okay it would be one man if your partner didn't show up um that only fortunately <laughs> happened a couple of times to me um yeah i mean you get paid double but it's impossible to you know officiate yeah. four bases and call balls and strikes and you know see the catches in the outfield and all the runners touching the bases um, yeah, you know, you only have two set, one set of eyes, two eyes to to do it. So it seems like at our at our league meeting in the St. Croix Valley League, we talk every single year about having a rule to have two umpires because there's a lot of teams that still, and it's because they only want to pay one guy. And I get it, but I know as soon as we moved into our ballpark in in River Falls, and we had a fair amount of people coming, as it we only did a couple games with with one umpire which was kind of like the league rule and the standard where after that we just said you guys this is not fair to that one guy and our our crowd is not not too rowdy at all but even so you get a lot of people there and everybody's watching just this one guy try to do all that stuff you're just talking about that's impossible and um it just was not fair so we have always booked a two-man crew every game since i think since 2014 because i always figure even if if the crowd is a little rowdy or one of the teams is or whatever, at least you got that one other guy you can go talk to about in the, in the mid innings. Do you guys talk about it with the second umpire or do you just pretend it's not happening? I've always wondered that. Uh, It depends on, you know, how the game is going. Um, You know, there are certainly those situations where, um, you know, they're asking you to, to check with your partner and you go out there and, you know, you're like, I, I have no clue. If you saw this, you know, a certain way, I'll certainly go with your mm-hmm. call. And you kind of come come to an agreement and you, you make the call and you stick with it. Um, otherwise, you know, it's just, 
you know, you're a team. So sometimes, you know, even if you, you don't agree with your partner's strike zone that day, um, you guess you're going to find nice things to, to say and, um, yep. pick them up, make them feel good, keep his confidence up. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly, you know, those memorable things that, that happen. And I had, um, Probably the last five years, I had a, a, a pretty dedicated partner. Um, you know, we worked almost every game together. We would uh, travel to the really far games together. Uh, you know, every mm-hmm. time we got sent from Middleton to Casanova, you know, we would text each other and complain. Um, but then, you know, <laughs> the hour and a half drive is um, certainly fun, you know, reminiscing, telling stories, getting to know each other. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of umpires are like that. They have their, you know, one or two partners and you uh, forge a friendship um, and that makes it uh, even more fun to, to work those games when you're working with someone that you really enjoy uh, and you have that trust in. Yeah. So it's just that, that teamwork, that camaraderie that it just, just surrounds the game, you know, extends to our umpiring crews too. That's cool. That's, you know, not something I've thought a lot about and, um, Yeah, that's interesting, Chris. Cool. Hey, baseball fans, we're about halfway through the conversation here, so it's time to take a quick break and thank our podcast sponsors. That includes my friends at Aspen Creek Publishing, who helped me publish my own book about town baseball, Beyond the Fence, a fun novel about town ball life based on lies and half-truths from my time around the game. You'll find it on Amazon.com or our website at BaseballCommute.com. You won't find it on Audible, though, because... Frankly, I just don't have the patience to read a whole book out loud. This last half of this episode is brought to you by Stopping at the Gas Station on the way home from the game, about 11.30 p.m. or midnight, and finishing all their breakfast sandwiches. Special shout out to all of you who do that still wearing your game pants. And speaking of great decisions, if you're interested in advertising here on the pod, just hit us up at BaseballCommute.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. So at a certain point, you leave umpiring, and now let's talk a little bit about the MASBL. Did I say that right, MASBL? Because you're on the board, right? Yep, so it's the Men's Adult Baseball League of South Central Wisconsin. Um, So our local chapter is, is MABL, but it's part of the... Um, MSBL National um, Federation of Leagues. Um, so yeah, we have um, five different um, age categories. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, back oh back in the I don't know late two thousands. Um, I think the league was still going on. I'm not sure of its history. It's it's kind of up and down. I think it's been going on for quite some time. But um, before I joined it, it's it's a little hazy to me. But I was still playing on weeknights uh, with a team of Epic guys, guys that I worked with at Epic um, in just like the Madison City Rec League. Um, and it was, you know, it was what it was. The umpires were not that great because – you know they're paying guys thirty five and a game to to do those games when you could make mm-hmm. double that work in a home talent game. Um, so the you know the umpiring wasn't that great. The the competition was ho hum. The cool part about it is Madison owned 
the Duck Pond, which is where the Madison Mallards play. So every year we got to play a few games at that field, um, okay. which uh, was pretty cool. Um, you know, it's a, a, a summer, you know, Northwoods League field. And um, before they fixed the dugouts up a couple of years ago, it was a cesspool for mosquitoes. But, yeah. um, you know, back when there were some budget cuts in the late 2000s, that, that kind of – it grew thin, and the the city cut that league, um, and then the MABL board decided that, hey, we have a bunch of teams that play on the weeknights that still want to play, even though the mm-hmm. Madison City doesn't want to host it anymore. So that's when we um, brought together that 17 and over league that plays on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, so there's been a steady, I think, about eight, eight teams. Um, mm-hmm. you know, per season uh, that play each other. Um, in that one, the the ATN over league that plays on Sundays has kind of wavered between like five and eight teams. You know, depending on whether mm-hmm. guys can you know get their crap together. Um, you know, the thirty-five and up league that plays on Friday nights has about eight teams. Um, you know, they play. You know, I don't know. 10, 12 games a, a season, um, and then the 45 and the 52 and up leagues are a little bit smaller, um, but they still find a way to play, you know, 10 to 15 games a season and try and have a good yeah. season. So a lot of baseball still happening. Um, yeah, and that's it, all it, all within all within Madison and kind of the well Madison yeah, you know, like, we, and surrounding little suburbs, right? So yeah, I, I would say most guys are living in Madison, but certainly guys are coming in from, you know, a little farther away, uh, especially mm-hmm. in some of the, the 35, 45, and 52 and up leagues um, where guys just can't, you know, they can't compete in the hometown league or the Rock River League anymore. So, um, you know, they're still able and, you know, have the desire to play. So, um yeah. Well, and there's a, you know, over in close to me in Minnesota over here, there's a, there's a really organized 35 and over league in of itself. Um, and if I look at like outstate Wisconsin, we don't have, we have some 35 and over teams that really kind of go and play in a tournament at the end of the year. They maybe pick up a few games during the summer against other teams, but nothing really organized. So for Madison to have its own pretty organized, it sounds like 35 and over team is good. I mean, there's, because I'm, hey, I'm 39. You said you're 37, Chris. So we, you know, we can identify with all those guys and what it feels like the next day to get up after a baseball game. And um, I'd still take it over getting up the next day after sitting home and gardening or something. You know, I'd be just a sore. Yeah. But um, okay, so I was. Here's what. Here's what I'm. What I'm curious about too. So from the okay, let's go. Let's just go stereotypical outside looking in. And I think, like I joked with somebody, and I it was a joke. I didn't mean it, but I said, I said, you know, I look at these, I think about these rec leagues. It's, it's like noon basketball at the YMCA, but that would be to me, like the stereotype version, like guys show up, somebody rolls out some balls, you play baseball, you go home. But my sense is it's a lot more than that and a lot closer. So I look at, so for the teams that are in your league, do they, where do the, where do the funds come from that, pay for the umpires and pay for the baseballs. Are those teams responsible for raising those yearly? Do guys just pay a fee? 
what does it take to run a team to be in charge of a team in Madison? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I actually manage um, one of the ATM up teams in a, addition to sitting on the 35 and on board. So uh, I have pretty good, well-rounded knowledge of what it takes to run a team in a league. So uh, yeah. from a team perspective, um, you know, my team is the Blue Jays and um, basically every everyone play, pays team dues. Um, we mm-hmm. kind of figure out where our roster is and what our costs are, and we have a little budget spreadsheet that says, you know, here's how many games we're going to play, here's what it costs for the umpires per game, you know, here's what we need to budget for equipment and uniforms and, you know, any other, like, practice facility fees and kind of budget that in and come up with a dollar amount. Um, and it's nothing outlandish. I think the last couple of years uh, our team dues have been $200 a person, um, mm-hmm. which is not terrible when you're paying or playing like 15, you know, to 17 or 18 games a year, depending on how far you go in the playoffs. Um, sure. And umpire fees are coming out of those team dues. Um, and then there's also a, a league fee. So it just, you know, a franchise fee uh, that goes to um, the MABL, um, and I think, I don't know, it's, you know, $1,500 a year or whatever for the team. Um, and then that goes to, like, the, the field rental. It goes to your liability insurance. Um, it goes to some philanthropy for the league and, you know, supporting some of the local Little League chapters and, like, the Miracle uh, Foundation, the Miracle League that, you know, does some cool things with, you know, baseball and softball around here. Um, so it's it's not all that unreasonable uh, of a cost mm-hmm. to play, uh, I don't think, uh, especially considering you know that's you know a whole summer's worth of activity, um, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I started managing the Blue Jays, I started thinking about okay, like you know some of these teams have sponsors, and you know what what would it take to get you know a sponsorship? And so just asking the places that I go all the time, you know, I bowl at this place all the time, and um, you know, Ten Penny Alley sponsored me, and you know, I go to this place called It's Time in Verona for breakfast every single Friday, and you know, they sponsored the team, and so you know, just thinking about that and raising some funds that way, it can help defray the costs for some of the guys that are on the team that you know they might still be in college or you know just you yeah. know, starting an entry level job, and you know, instead of paying two hundred and fifty, you're only paying two hundred, and that might make or break for some of these guys, so. They're really trying to make it as affordable for for guys as possible. Um, yeah, it's you know, so to me, it was nice that you took it positive, Chris, because you talked about just before I was about to go negative. You t- you talked about helping out the little league and helping out the miracle league, and I thought that was good. That brought me back because where my mind was going was, you know, it's just it's all the same headache that we all face no matter where we are. But the added challenge you've got is no beer sales, right? So anybody that's run an an amateur baseball team anywhere where you aren't pulling in a ton of concessions during the summer. Um, so I think about like the years we were playing at the high school field in River Falls or lots of you guys are doing the same stuff. It's that's the same thing you're doing in Madison. You, we, I mean, I can remember us having winter meetings of going, okay, where do, how many games do we want to play? Where do we want to go? This is what it's going to cost us. Now, how much do you guys want to pay out of pocket versus how many meat raffles do we need to have or how many, uh, so many, like you said, how many sponsors do we need to find or what's this advertising book that we can do? 
um, a lot of that stuff goes away if you've got a small town and a small town beer stand. But if you don't, which still is a lot of small towns where teams are playing at high schools, and it's similar to what you guys have rolling in Madison, I mean, that's a lot of work in the winter to try to figure out all those logistics. So kudos to you, Chris, definitely for doing those. Um, do you have – so do you do you meet with your guys and, and – I think you said you kind of set, set that budget out for the year and figure out what guys want to pay. Is that kind of how it rolls? Yeah, it's uh, it's not you know, done with science for for any you know stretch of the imagination. But um, yeah. yeah, usually come I don't know January February, guys are like, all right, it's going to be baseball season. We're making it through winter. You know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and so you're starting to figure out, okay, who's coming back? You know, mm-hmm. where, where positionally are you thin? You know, we do have a in the MABL we have a player pool, so um, mm-hmm. you know, I think first things first is we just we ask the guys that we know, like, hey, buddy, you want to play this year? Like, we played either softball or they've subbed on our team, or you know, people know people, mm-hmm. so we tried to leverage those networks and then. Uh, if not, then we, you know, look at the player pool. And um, last year, actually, and it was unfortunate due to the pandemic, but um, there were enough guys in the player pool that I thought for sure in the 18 over league um, we could grow by at least one team just from player pool guys. And so mm-hmm. uh, we were fortunate. We had a guy that, you know, expressed some interest in managing that team because that's the hardest thing is finding someone who wants to coordinate all this for uh, a fledgling team. And, um, yeah. You know, he knew enough guys, and there were enough guys on the player pool that they, they pulled a team together. And you know, we didn't have a season due to the the coronavirus, but um, they definitely did some scrimmages with some other teams. Um, so you know, I'm hopeful that uh, they can stick together. Um, and yeah, just keep enough of a spark. You know, keep enough of a spark in that season that hopefully we get uh, that vaccine going and we get rolling in more normally here in 2021 um as we get going i okay the the other question i had that i see sometimes chris is so that the the mabl and you have the different divisions does it all does it all feed into something so if you if you win the madison league do you in your division do you go to like a regional thing seems like like there's some that are like nationally coordinated some of these organizations but i haven't met anybody that's hooked up with that yet yeah we do so nothing specifically feeds into like a larger regional um, tournament or anything but uh, the msbl does host several uh, they call them world series tournaments um where you know in you know in october november december there's tournaments in arizona there's tournaments in florida um, and we definitely had teams from the MABL, um, mostly 35 and over, that have um, gotten together and gone down, or gone down to uh, Arizona or Florida and, and played some ball and um, held their own down there. And I think it's pretty cool because they usually play on some of the fields that um, the major league ball clubs uh, do their spring, spring training at. So a pretty cool opportunity. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, timing-wise, it never really worked for me uh, when I got asked, but it is something that I'm interested in doing uh, once we, you know, push past the the travel restrictions and everything. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, well, you know, nothing also, that you 
also once you and I win the lottery as well. Yeah. That, okay. This, I, I've had, you've been asked to do this too, then, and I have too. Like, hey, why don't you come to Florida with us this year? Why don't you come to Arizona with us this year? And I always look at these guys and I'm like, well, you are a small business owner or, <laughs> or you can shut down for two weeks and just go or, um, you like, how do I fit this into my family budget to say dad can take a trip to Florida to play baseball for two weeks. So all of you guys out there who are like, yeah, it's all, I don't know why you guys don't go to Florida every week. Well, it's cause we can't, you guys, cause we can't, if we could, yeah, we would, we'd be with you, you know, send the contract <laughs> over to my agent and we'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But so those are, okay. So that's what we're talking about with those national kind of world series. Well, I guess, those, the guys I've talked to about it, I've never put those two things together. So that's what those go with when you talk about going to these places to play during the winter. A lot of times it's those, they call them World Series. You don't have to win to get there. You just have to get a team to be able to enter to go, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I've I've certainly heard of, you know, some of the guys that have gone and played are playing against guys that used to play in the bigs or, or mm-hmm. whatever. And, you know, that can be all inspiring too. But you know, from what I gather from the teams that that I know have that have gone down there, you know they've they've won their fair share of games. You know they've never won a championship, but it's it, it's good to know that the level of competition that that I'm used to playing against can compete at some of these national tournaments in pool play and and work work their way through some of the um, brackets and uh, you know, do fairly well and not just be like a three and out sort of thing. Yeah. And really, I mean, let's be honest, my anger towards those guys is really nothing more than jealousy. That's all it is. It's just jealousy. I would love to be in Las Vegas playing baseball right now as it's getting cold here in November in Wisconsin. So, um, yeah, don't don't take me the wrong way, fellas. But, yeah, it's jealousy. Yeah, my ego That's thinks I is. can hit the ball out of a major league ballpark. But, you know, put me down there and let me actually try yeah. Hey, I'd be fine just being on the on the beach for the first four innings, and then, um, you know, I'll come and guard the water for the last five. <laughs> being somewhere warm yeah. right now sounds sounds really fantastic. For sure. Um, okay. So, what else? Uh, what else about the MA, MABL? What are some of your What are some of your great memories? Do you guys congregate after games and hang out before games? Get to you know some of the camaraderie that that you're used to in the home talent league. Did you Did you find that in I mean, different being an umpire, but I mean, you were around it. So, okay, sorry, I just asked you five questions at one time, Chris. <laughs> so one one thing that was in my mind about going back to your umpiring days um, and that camaraderie piece around the league, I can I can think of umpires, um, you know, Dan Hoffman and Brian Ingley, and I start naming guys and 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 Buzz and Eric Harmon and some of these guys that have been umpiring over in our league for a long time that as a player and a manager, you know, I've gotten to know really well. I would consider them friends, you know, like somebody sent me an invitation to their kid's grad party. I wouldn't turn it down type of thing. Right. Um, Did you, were you able to build those kind of relationships in the home talent league or is it a little more like when we work with umpires from Minnesota, they're part of Northwest umpires. Um, We have different guys about every game that we go to. So I've got to know a couple of those guys, but not in the same way as the Wisconsin guys I've seen umpiring for 20 years. So did, were you able to build some of those relationships with players and managers in the hometown league, or was it a little different dynamic? And then my follow-up question, too, is that type of camaraderie, did you find that when, you, when you've when you gone into Madison? 
Yes, that's a that's a good question. So I definitely remember working games in the home talent league where once you finish up, you know, no matter how good or bad you called the game, you know, they'd ask if you want to have a beer, or go to the local mm-hmm. watering hole and, and join them. And, um, you know, I was always like, you know, sweaty and dehydrated and, you know, wanted to just drink a big Gatorade and drive home in the air conditioning. Uh, so I yep. really never took them up on that. But, you know, you certainly – you get to know the managers and you get to know the players, especially the ones that are playing, you know, year in and year out for, you know, 10 years. You see these guys that, you know, you just get to know them and you respect them and what they're doing. And, you know, cause as an umpire, like I was pushing in, you know, from my twenties into my thirties and starting to realize that like, yeah, like after I work, you know, an extra inning game, my knee hurts just a little bit more. I can't imagine what these players mm-hmm. are, are doing in cleats or whatever. Um, I think on the flip side of that as a, a player and a manager and a board member in the MABL, you know, it's hard to find good umpiring. And so the flip side of that is like you do want them to feel included. And, you know, I am Facebook friends with a couple of guys and I've, you know, with my history of umpiring, some of the umpires are a little bit newer to the game, so I find myself, like, offering up, you know, mentoring, or like, hey, you know, I thought your positioning could have been a little bit better. Here's the theory on why, um, you know, to kind of coach them along. But but really, it's so hard to find umpiring, and you're kind of alluding to it earlier with, you know, these crazy parents, and it's hard, especially as a 16-year-old, to get into the, the profession and, and do youth baseball, which is really where you, you know, earn your, your chops. And, you know, you want these guys to feel part of the league and to stick with it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be able to call on them, you know, every single weekend and know that they're going to be at your games because they enjoy working your games because your teams are respectful and, you know, the games go well and the manager and, and the league have things under control, have their backs. So I, I think it's really important to think about it from that angle too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's be really honest about that. We've talked about that on the podcast before, that um, how you, in terms of guys can complain about trying to find umpires, but how you treat your umpires really has a lot to do uh, with how easy it is to find umpires. I mean, that's just human nature, right, Chris? That's got to be, that's got to be a truth that, you know, not, I'm not asking you to name names, nor would I want you to, nor would you want to, I'm sure, but there's got to be places where you, you know, gone like, okay, I don't really want to come back here. The guy's a jerk, right? I mean, we're humans. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, I certainly have, you know, I could tell stories of, you know, some of those guys that, you know, just say things that are factually incorrect. You know, they're citing <laughs> one rule when, you know, that's, that's interference. A, that's like, a, no, that's, that's actually a really, obstruction. That's a really nice way to put it, factually incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you, you know, some of it, too, is you go where the assigner tells you to go and um, you do those games and you put, you know, any animosity or grudges behind you. And, you know, as a, an official, you're calling the most you know, accurate game that you possibly can and you're doing it impartially. And I, I think that's important to do uh, as officials. Um, so, yeah, there's you know, there's only so much you can do in terms of compensation, right? You know, our our league mm-hmm. is kept up with home talent who's kept up with Rock River, and so everyone is, 
you know, pretty competitive in terms of what they're paying around here. Um, so really, it's just how you treat those umpires um, that can set your set you apart um, and really get some of those umpires that, you know, it's it's hard to to recruit those umpires and get them from the home talent league into our league. And you know, some of the differences are, you know, guys just like to do one game at home talent versus you know working the double headers. Uh, on Sundays just because of the time commitment. You know, they're they're our age or a little older. They they like their family time. You know, their wife doesn't want them gone more than four hours um, sort of thing. Um, right. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's very much a, a people game still, you know, and, and those relationships that you make and foster are very important to yeah. you know, growing and sustaining these leagues and, um, it takes a lot of work that it's probably more un, unheralded and unsung uh, by mm-hmm. boards across all of these small leagues um, across Wisconsin and America that that make it happen. I'm sure it's it's very similar to you know youth youth leagues, little leagues, uh, where it's a lot of volunteer time and um, effort to just you know keep the ball running. Yeah, and I, you know we don't we don't when you say that we don't I don't feel like we have a strategy at least in our at our, I'll just say our local board level in the St. Clair Valley League here in Western Wisconsin. I don't know that we have a strategy for recruiting in more umpires, um, other than just the grand strategy of hope, right? And just hope people <laughs> come forward. But, um, are, are there things that, are there things that we should be doing, um, to recruit umpires? Is there something you guys are doing on the board as just bringing that knowledge as a former umpire? that the rest of us should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, part of it is usually the umpire coordinators on these boards um, are paid positions uh, just because of how thankless it is to, you know, coordinate schedules across multiple months and weekends uh, and mm-hmm. a finite stable of umpires um, and, you know, finding reliable guys that will show up um, and not stand up games and um, put the, the league in – you know, player safety and jeopardy. And one thing that NABL has done is really try to encourage uh, their players to umpire across the different divisions. And so we have a couple of guys that were playing in the 35 and over league that now work together as an umpiring crew, um, and they call leagues in some of the divisions uh, or call games in some of the divisions that they're not playing in. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it's certainly different calling balls and strikes and safe and out when you're not playing. Uh, it gives you a, an interesting perspective on uh, the officials. But really, I would say one of the the keys to success for an umpire is just an understanding of the game and how mm-hmm. it's played. And some of the anticipation that you have, like, you know, situational awareness where, like, you know that there's a pretty good chance that, say, you know, the runner on second is going to get backpicked and, you know, be on the lookout for that. So you're, you're anticipating that and making the call on it. Players are are just good at that. You know, if you spend time on the field, you have that awareness. And so I think it makes the transition to umpiring a lot easier. And so I think that's where our, our recruiting is going to have to come from, is from guys that are playing and, you know, they get to be our age and I can't play mm-hmm. on Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday anymore. 
but maybe I can play on Friday and Sunday and then umpire on Tuesday and Thursday. Um, yeah, sort of right. thing. And, um, you know, it's not a terrible way to make a, you know, almost 200 bucks on a night, you know, working a doubleheader. Uh, I can think of worse things to do in a, in a summer in South Central Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it, it's, it's a challenge, you know, and like, like you said, towards the start of the call, it's, it's hard to get guys doing this, uh, or girls doing this for that matter, um, you know, early on in their lives and, you know, giving them the experience and confidence to work in some of these leagues where, you know, you have more difficult personalities and um, guys that still think they, they can hack it in the minor leagues um, mm-hmm. and have the attitude to match it. Um, it takes a certain level of confidence. And I think the longer guys can and, and girls can, you know, work games and officiate and play gives them a leg up and it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's I mean, sad that parents like, have ruined it. Yeah. Right. Make it, make it appear to be something you would never want to do. That's, that's what I see when you get young guys out, young kids out there starting to think about umpiring and then, and then parents will kind of, yeah, that's, we'll belabor the point, but that's interesting too about as a, as a, as a player that anticipatory, like, yeah, you do know when, and you almost get a sixth sense for it when somebody's getting about to get picked off, and it's never never quick enough to actually prevent it from happening. All you have time to do is look at the guy standing next to you on the bench and go, "Hey, Jim's going to get picked right here." And then the guy picks over, and then your guy's done, and he's off the field. But <laughs> you never—I can't tell you why—you just kind of get a sense for it when you get to about our age, where we just have seen things happen enough times. Yeah. Well, speaking of time we're i didn't keep track of what time it is so we are probably getting close to close to the end of the of our allotted half hour i bet we're over it by now um but chris thanks for the conversation that's uh definitely a a a great look at all the all the different parts of kind of your career i'll just say so far in uh amateur baseball because there's so lots to be played it looks like you're not quite I mean, you're more than halfway to that 52 and over division, but there's a little bit. What is that like, 52 and over? There's my last question. What does this look like, 52 and over? And I'm going to let you be as diplomatic as you want to be, and then I'm going to assume it's way worse. What well, what should I expect when I show up to a 52 and over game? By the way, every one of those guys could beat me up, so I, I feel like <laughs> I still respect every one of them who can do this, but – what what would I see in a 52 and over game? I think well I've never been to one of our 52 and over games so I, I can't tell you what the competition is like but I, I guarantee you those guys are just super happy to be playing baseball still and so mm-hmm. you know they're not throwing nearly as hard as they did you're probably seeing a lot of junk ball a lot of curveballs coming in um, very slow runners um, you know probably a courtesy runner or four. Um, but I think, you know, it's just a league where, you know, you certainly have your athletes that are light years above, you know, some of the other players in the league just because, you know, they've kept themselves in a level of fitness that uh, is unmatched. But I think by and large, it's just, you know, amazing that guys are still playing organized baseball at 52 um, yeah. and older for that matter. Um, and, you know, my 35 and over team, we had a guy that, 
you know, was still playing in the 35 and over league and, you know, holding on. So, um, yeah. they're guys that just love to play and they're going to play, you know, probably like me until I have some sort of career ending injury on the baseball field. Knock on wood, hope it doesn't happen, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll play as long as our bodies let us. And, um, yeah. I think it's just outstanding that, um, guys that are, you know, 45 and 52 and over have, uh, a forum for that. And I think guys do come in from, you know, a, a lot farther away uh, than Dane County to, to play those leagues because there aren't uh, a ton of uh, organized leagues for, for folks their age. So, Sure. Well, once it's you're tough. retired, you just have more time to drive, you know? Yeah, in all seriousness, I have played against and with a couple guys who are in their 50s that, yeah, we're, are just both of them that I'm thinking of right now great baseball players and just freak athletes too. And then I just think of like Jack Palance with the one arm behind his back doing the one arm push-ups on the Oscar stage or whatever, how many years ago. And so that's where I say, like, I can make fun of what a 52 and over division looks like, but the reality is every single one of those guys is a better athlete than I ever will be. And probably still is a better athlete than my 25 year old self. And it's just, it's sad, but it's wonderful. For those guys. Yeah, I couldn't even do a two-arm push-up. Yeah, right. Well, Chris, thanks for the conversation, uh, and this has been a fun fun talk on the commute. Thanks for coming yeah. on. Thank you for having best, me. Yeah, best of luck in Madison, and, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of the Small Town Commute. If you liked what you heard, do us a favor and share the podcast with fellow ball players. You can send them to our website at baseballcommute.com. I'm always looking for guests and great conversations, so if you've got a suggestion or you just want to call and talk baseball, shoot us a line at baseballcommute at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for what you do for amateur baseball, wherever that might be. the